the Indigenous Connection Show. Tanse. My name is Randy Lynn and I'm the host for the Indigenous Connections radio show. Join me as we discuss various topics in regards to First Nations culture, arts, ideologies, and spirituality from both a historical and contemporary point of view. Tanse. Randy Lynn the Tsugasen Mastasaninihia Uchinia Lakopesh Alberta Egwa Ni Wigan. Hello, welcome to the Indigenous Connections radio show. I'm your host, Randy Lynn Nanmu Candelain. And a little bit about myself, I'm the eldest of three children. My family originates from the Big Stone Cree Nation in North Central Alberta, Treaty 8 territory. However, I spent most of my life in Lac La Biche. This is where I grew up. And then I also moved to Saskatoon for about 10 years where I obtained my Indigenous social work degree. And I also have an Aboriginal mental health diploma. Um, so I consider myself very fortunate in the fact that I did have the ability to be raised around my culture. I'm very grateful for that, where many people didn't have that opportunity. So that really motivated me into the kind of work I do today, including this radio show. So for this radio show, every week we kind of dive into discussing various topics in regards to First Nations culture, which includes art, history, ideologies, and spirituality from both a historical and contemporary point of view. And why I always mention contemporary is because there's this stereotype, this misunderstanding, this belief that as Indigenous people, our culture died out, or that we are very stuck in the past, if you will. But that's not a very fair statement to make, as our culture is always evolving. It's adapting to the times and you can see this in our art how we use mediums of contemporary materials uh, in our fashion yes we hold on to the teachings of the past and we look to the past for guidance but we are not stuck in the past we are not relics of the past it is in my hopes that by having these open conversations every week and kind of creating a dialogue with some explanation um, I really hope to start breaking down stereotypes and misunderstandings and building what I like to refer to as a metaphorical bridge between the Indigenous and non-Indigenous communities. And I feel really taking time to understand one another, understand the historical context, the ideologies, the belief systems of why people operate the way they do, why things happen the way they do. We can really start to understand one another and then that's how we're going to move forward in the spirit of reconciliation. Um, and when I say reconciliation, I'm talking about not just one party, but all parties involved ready to take responsibility for the wrongdoings of the past and willing to take time to work together to understand one another, to move forward in a good way, to start that healing journey in hopes for a better future for the next generation. So today's topic is a continuation of my Okamawa Squayo series. So Okamawa Squayo, loosely translated into English, uh, I like to call it boss lady. Uh, some people say chief's wife or um, a female leader, but I think boss lady sounds so much cooler. <laughs> Anywho, um, so this is our fourth installment. And we're continuing on with our missing and murdered indigenous women, the epidemic, the movement that has come from that epidemic. So stay tuned for that. Oh.
The Indigenous Connection Show. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Indigenous Connections radio show. I'm your host, Randy Lynn, and today we are starting our conversation on the fourth segment of the Okamao Escuelo series. So as I mentioned earlier, Okamao Escuelo loosely translates into boss lady. And last week we kind of discussed started to discuss the missing murdered indigenous women's epidemic and the movement that has sprung from that. When I first started tackling this topic, I didn't realize it would take us this many episodes just to get to this point. And I still kind of see at least three more episodes coming from the Okamao Escuelo series. Um, But it seemed the more I dug into this topic, the more I wanted to share, the more I was learning, and the more stories kept popping up, and the more I was realizing how huge of an issue this really is. Um, And like I said, it's a really good indicator how vast this topic is and how much work we really have to do in bringing change and healing and coming to a place where we honestly and truly respect our women from a good place right so let's review the last four episodes really quickly oh sorry last three episodes (laughs) we're on our fourth one so we began with talking about how indigenous people identify as a matriarch society and how it was a common practice for men to literally seek out the women for their wisdom their guidance when it came to making very important detrimental decisions for the community how women were considered, are considered sacred for that ability to navigate a spirit into from the spirit world into this physical one. That women possess that power to give life if they choose to. That women were so highly respected and honored that the stories, the lore that indigenous people shared often when spirits would appear, they would appear in a physical female form, understanding how special, how important, how sacred the woman is and in this lore that was shared there were stories there were teachings there were warnings that if you disrespect women there are grave consequences to follow so it was just a norm to respect women in traditional indigenous cultures as our mothers are our first home and we wouldn't be here without the women right the story of the bison teaches us that their how their population nearly hit extinction because the women, the females of the herd, were being hunted in such vast numbers and they weren't allowed time to repopulate themselves. Um, So we fast forward to when the newcomers started arriving in the new land in um, Turtle Island as we refer to it or some people refer to the Americas. So we kind of see how the switch from the matriarch to the patriarch system that commonly dominates our society now has begun. So when the colonizers arrived, they refused to acknowledge women in leadership roles as they were governed by their own patriarch views. And these patriarch views stem all the way back to the story, the creation story of Adam and Eve and how Eve was the first one to defy the Lord's words, right? And then we see this amplified in the witch hunt, in the witch trials, and how women were persecuted for not being subservient to men, to being outspoken, to being uh, strong-willed, if you will. And then now we have two different groups of people with polar opposite, polar opposites, sorry, views of women trying to inhabit one 
area, the same land, right? These misunderstandings often led to violence. And indigenous women in the first time in history are being violated, being objectified, and being victimized, as this was not allowed traditionally. Um, so from that, a legacy would follow that spanned centuries, literally from the 15th century. Um, we look back to the story of Pocahontas, as many people refer to her as, and that over-romanticized story of her life being turned into a Disney movie, a Disney princess, when the reality is she was a young girl who was abducted and kept hostage for over a year in the colonies and then taken away from her own family, from her own children, her own husband, and taken to England and put on display as what a uh, good Indian looks like to encourage the work that they were doing in the new world to say, look, we are civilizing these savages. And unfortunately, the story of Pocahontas ends very tragically in the fact that she died at the age of 21. Uh, we consider Pocahontas to be the first missing and murdered indigenous woman in history. And following this, we continue to see the see the dismantling of the matriarch system with the implementations of the residential school where children were literally taken away at such a t young tender age and forced into government-funded church-operated institutions here they were taught western values it was literally beat into them uh, that often opposed the teachings of their people boys and girls in these schools were kept separated from one another and they operated in a patriarch system. Children are often victims of sexual abuse by the people in power, uh, the priests and nuns, who were supposed to be their caregivers. And from this, our children learn predatorial behaviors, as this was never happened to our children before this. And we see a new phenomenon of lateral violence and our own men, our own men taking advantage of our own women as it's a learned behavior that they understood. This is what happened to me as a child and with no proper intervention, no one to say what happened to you wasn't your fault and it's wrong. They grew up believing this is just how you get your needs met, right? So we see the cycle of violence continuing with that. And now we fast forward to, to statistics of today where one in four indigenous women and girls will be a victim of violent crime in her life and an epidemic of our women and girls are going missing at very alarming rates right here in Canada. A grassroots movement has sprung from this ongoing occurrence as the reality is not much was being done over the fact that our women were disappearing, our children were disappearing at very alarming rates and no one was stepping up to protect them. Um, so this grassroots movement works to bring justice to the women and girls, as well as continuously fighting to bring issues in, of our women and girls being over-victimized to society's attention, while also giving platforms to families who are affected by the issue and an ability to voice their concerns and to keep the memory of their loved one alive. Because for so long, our women and girls who were going missing, have gone missing, and being attacked has not been an important issue. It's been often overlooked by mainstream media 
and really swept under the rug by authorities, minimalized, uh, victim shamed, etc. These grassroots organizations go by many names, but they all stand under the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Woman Movement. So last week we ended with the story of Daylene Muskego Bassi, who was a mother, a wife, a daughter, a sister, a university student. Her life mattered, regardless of how she identified. Uh, a beautiful woman from Onion Lake Cree Nation who had goals, who had ambitions. Uh, she wanted to be a teacher when she finished school. And how she went missing one night from Saskatoon and how her family fought tirelessly for years to bring Darlene home or to get answers of what happened to her, only to find out that she was targeted by a predator because she was indigenous. And this predator that attacked Darlene came out and bluntly said, because Daylene was indigenous, she made the perfect target because I knew there would be a less likely chance that I would be caught for it. The story of Daylene is a very tragic one as this predator abducted her, assaulted her, and disposed of her body in a very inhumane way. Um, this predator was brought to justice because he was literally bragging about the indecencies he'd done to Daylene to an undercover police officer who just who was wearing a wire, thank goodness. So these topics are extremely hard on the spirit and the heart. But for so long, society didn't want to acknowledge that these things were very real issues for indigenous women going all the way back to the story of, like I said, a Pocahontas, or by her real name, Makota, in the 16th century. And the only way we can change and heal is to acknowledge that we do have a problem. Like people say, the first step is to acknowledge you have a problem. Well, we as a society need to acknowledge we have a very serious issue. We have a very serious problem going on. And we need to have these conversations, even if they're uncomfortable. The healthy and safety of our children literally depend on it. The Indigenous Connection Show. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Indigenous Connections Radio Show. I'm your host, Randy Lynn, and today is the fourth installment of our Okamawa Square series as we continue talking about the missing and murdered Indigenous and girls epidemic. Um, so... Like I mentioned, these are very uncomfortable topics to talk about, but they're so important to talk about for the safety of our children as their livelihoods, their safety depends on us being better for them. And as an aunt, as a step-parent, having to have these conversations with these little girls in my life, these beautiful little girls that I love and care about so much, and having to explain to them that it's not safe for them. I think the hardest conversation I had to have with my stepdaughter, um, she lives in Saskatoon, was why we were so scared that she decided to walk home instead of catching the bus one day. She's a very mature, very responsible little girl. Um, we trust her so much, but she couldn't understand why we freaked out on her when she decided to walk home from school. And where I was staying in Saskatoon, it was, wasn't the best neighborhood. 
and to explain to her it's not you that we don't trust it's the reality of society that you as a beautiful indigenous girl with your beautiful brown skin are not safe that you're you are targeted by predators just because of the way you look and trying not to burst out in tears while I do this and trying to not victimize her at the same time to make her feel like there's something wrong with her because of the way she looks that maybe if she was a little lighter skinned maybe we wouldn't be so scared for her safety to try find the balance in that explaining that it's not her fault that she is perfect she is beautiful just the way she is it's society that has the problem so that was such a difficult conversation to have but I needed to have it with her regardless because I wouldn't be doing her any favors and pretending like this wasn't happening um and I guess that kind of leads me into my next story I'd like to share about Tina Fontaine and how Dreg the Red was sprung out of the story of Tina's disappearance. And when media does cover stories of an indigenous woman, they're often victim shamed, they're often high risk lifestyle, oh, they did this, they did that, oh, they experienced this. But. We need to humanize these people. They're not just numbers. They're not just statistics. So I want to begin with explaining who Tina was. So Tina Michelle Fontaine was born in 1999 in Winnipeg, Manitoba. And she was raised for the majority of her life by her great aunt on the Sigiganik First Nations, which is just outside of Winnipeg. And I just want to kind of add a side note that in... Indigenous kinship terms, when we're referring to our great aunt, we refer to her as our grandmother, our cookum. Uh, anywho, so Miss Favel describes Tina as being very big hearted. She loves school and she was great with kids. She was always playing with kids. And she's quoted as saying, Any good word there is out there in this world that would describe Tina to me, that would describe Tina to me. To me, Tina was the perfect little girl. Unfortunately, Tina did experience some trauma in her life, and at 12 years old, her father was beaten to death in Winnipeg. Um, this, uh, lo this loss affected her greatly, as expected, as it would affect any one of us greatly, right? To experience that kind of loss, that kind of trauma. And from that, her family started to notice that she was slipping into depression, uh, set on by the grief that was greatly affecting her. And they repeatedly asked for assistance for Tina from Child and Family Services. And the story of Tina's disappearance is a very, very tragic one. It's one where she obviously slipped through the cracks. So I'm gonna share with you an article on the disappearance of Tina. So by, Ju by July 2014, at the age of 15, Tina Fontaine was living in Winnipeg Fontaine was reported missing to Winnipeg Police Services July 31, 2014. Her aunt Lana later said that Fontaine had stayed at, with her during the August long weekend, August 1st to 3rd. And then on August 5th, Tina telephoned her CFS worker and was subsequently picked up by members of CFS and the police. What happened to Fontaine between August and 5th and 8th is unclear, but she remained 
a missing youth. She presented she presented at a youth shelter in the early morning hours of August 8, but left shortly thereafter. At 5.15 a.m. on August 8, two police officers encountered her in a truck with an allegedly drunk driver as part of a traffic stop, but did not take her into custody, even though she was known to be missing. The two constables were suspended for their actions and left the police force. At 10 a.m., she was found passed out in an alleyway near Ellis Avenue and was escorted to a hospital and treated before being checked into a hotel placement, which she soon left. She was reported missing again on August 9th. At around 1.30 p.m. on August 17th, a body was found wrapped in plastic and a duvet cover and weighted down with rocks in the Red River. The body was identified as that of Tina the following day. Police believed that she had died on or around August 10th an autopsy was able to conclusively determine a cause of death. And that is the very unfortunate disappearance and ultimate demise of little Miss Tina Fontaine, who was only 15 years old, who only weighed 72 pounds, that literally was picked up by authorities not once but twice and left to her own means. She's a 15-year-old child. When I was 15, best believe I was thinking on doing whatever I wanted. Um, they, we needed to do better. We needed to do better for Tina. But that's the reality of the situation, that our babies are being taken away from us. They're being taken advantage of, and they are being abused, and in Tina's sake, disposed in a very inhumane way. Criticism obviously has arised from this incident. Asking questions like, if Tina looked different, if she was born into different circumstances, would more have been done to make sure she was safe and got the help she needed? Winnipeg has a very high population of Indigenous children in child and family services, uh, in care. So because she was an Indigenous child in care, was she kind of just a statistic to them, just a number, just another ward of the state? Does the overrepresentation of Indigenous people in Winnipeg who live below the poverty line, who battle addictions and are incarcerated, play into why Tina's disappearance wasn't taken so seriously? When she was reported missing twice, twice in the span of two days, and twice she was picked up, and twice she was left alone. After the discovery of Tina's body in the Red River, her friend came forward saying that she was with Tina the night she disappeared and claimed that a man approached them and offered them money and took Tina with him and that was the last anyone had seen or heard of Tina alive. That man that approached the two girls is Raymond Cormer and Raymond was actually charged initially with the death of Tina and following that he was actually acquitted and the Crown decided not to appeal the case. Many 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 people were invested in the trial of little Tina Fontaine and following the acquittal of the accused Manitoba and I apologize if I'm not pronouncing this way Right, Manitoba Kiwetonwani Okamau Wanak, Grand Chief Sheila North, 
On the steps of the courthouse said it was a, a tremendously sad day for our people. This is not the outcome anybody wanted. The systems, everything that was involved in Tina's life failed her. We've all failed. We, as a nation, need to do better for our young people, said North. It might not be the accused person that took her life, but someone took her life. That fact remains, and we must get to the bottom of it. Miss Fable, uh, Tina's great aunt, or grandma, told media afterwards, I just miss her so much. There's not a day that goes by that I don't think of my baby. These are not fun stories for me to tell, um, but they're so important to tell. So, following Tina's death, five years afterwards, in 2019, Indigenous youth and family workers believe nothing has changed to make sure no other children fall through the cracks and meet Tina's fate. When it comes to provincial and federal powers, it always comes down to funding issues. When there are calls for action for social change, it's always about funding. So again, grassroots organizations <clears throat> have a rise to the occasion as a way of creating change. If they won't help us, we will help ourselves. Excuse me. Um, I'm going to take a quick break here. I see the line of all the broken hearts lining up to tell their side. The already one-sided story Years of cycles in my mind Seems to be the ones we love Somewhere I learned to say I'm sorry the Indigenous Connections radio show. I'm your host, Randy Lynn, and today's conversation is the fourth installment of our Okamawa Square series, which loosely translates into Boss Lady in English. Uh, the conversations we are having are very heavy, very hard, and I know 
personally, I've had to take many breaks while I was doing my research just to wrap my head around what is going on. Doesn't feel like very boss lady conversation, but this is such an important issue to talk about. And the issue I'm talking about is our missing and murdered indigenous women and girls, the epidemic that's happening here in Canada. Um, last week, we talked about the story of Darlene Bossy, who disappeared after a night of just having a girls' night with her friends. And then we talk about the very tragic story of little Miss Tina Fontaine, who was 15 years old, who only weighed 72 pounds, and unfortunately was found wrapped up in a duvet with rocks to keep her kind of down in the Red River in Winnipeg, Manitoba. Um, they accused of Q's killer of Tina Fontaine. The last person she was seen with um, was acquitted, was acquitted, was found not guilty. Um, but regardless of the court trial and the lack of justice that has been served through the judicial system, uh, many grassroots organizations have sprung has answered the call to action if no one will to protect our people to say enough is enough that our women and our children are so important are so valuable that they deserve to feel safe and protected in their own homes in their own communities uh, regardless of their lifestyle choices so one of these organizations is the bear clan uh, this group is received national attention for the work they have done on the front lines in the inner city and the high-risk neighborhoods of Winnipeg. And many chapters of the Blair Clan have opened up in other cities throughout Canada. So what they are, they are a patrol group who provide support and services to Winnipeg's most vulnerable people. They often do outreach programs like uh, feeding the homeless and cleaning the streets of disregarded used syringes. Another movement that has come from the loss of Little Miss Tina is the Drake the Red. And the first time I ever heard about Drake the Red was through the APTN show First Contact. And if you're not familiar with First Contact, what they do is they take uh, individuals throughout Canada who have very strong negative opinions of Indigenous people and kind of throw them in many diverse communities throughout Canada to learn the stories of Indigenous people from their own mouths, learn the histories, and really learn to emphasize, to understand that many of their anger, a lot of their anger and their judgments have been misguided and through miseducation. Um, anywho, so I first heard about Drag the Red through First Contact, and I was just shocked at the work they do and the reason why they need to do the work. So what Drag the Red entails is they are a group of volunteers that have assembled together um, and their primary mission is to help solve cases of missing, murdered Indigenous women and girls by searching the Red River for remains and evidence. Uh, their name is deprived from the reality that they literally drag the Red River by dropping metal bars with hooks and chains into the river to pull up possible remains. Um, this group, as mentioned, started in 2014 
as a result of Tina being found in the Red River. And it's just compiled of local volunteers who want to help give some type of closure to family members with missing and murdered loved ones. Those who have chosen to volunteer often have their own stories of having loved ones ripped away from them through the missing and murdered indigenous women and girls epidemic. And they themselves are often worried about their own safety, knowing how often indigenous women go missing in their community. And I'd like to mention that it's not just indigenous people who are stepping up to do this volunteer work. It's just regular community members who are empathetic to what's going on in Winnipeg, in Manitoba, in Canada. Uh, Even professionals have volunteered their time to train the searchers. Uh, For example, uh, Emily Holland, who is a professor from the Brandon University, and her study is anthropology, and she literally volunteers her time to train searchers on how to identify possible bone fragments to give them that um, expertise so that when they go out there and they may find something to properly identify it and to know if they need to bring that um, piece to authorities to be further tested, right? So testimonial from Chantel Henderson, who is a volunteer with Drag the Red, spoke on the mixed emotions of being on the river searching. You hope you find something, but you sort of you're sort of hoping you don't because it means that person is gone. And like I said, the first time I heard about this movement, I just, I was so shocked. I was like, oh my gosh, is this what our reality is now? That we are sending people out on boats with nets to go literally search the Red River, to drag it with nets in hopes that they may, may find remains of someone's loved one. I can't even begin to try to emphasize with what kind of emotional and spiritual and mental toll that must take on a person to go out there knowing that this work is so necessary, but knowing what you may find and those mixed feelings of, I hope I can find remains of someone so that further can be done to discover the body and hopes that you don't find someone because uh, as mentioned that person is gone and just hoping that uh, this isn't happening but this is our reality it's just I don't know I don't know I'm just getting jumbled for words here because I'm just so overwhelmed with what this entails that we are sending search parties to literally drag the red on their free time to find body parts of our women that have been disregarded in such a horrible, horrible way. But we are not victims. And from the incident of Tina, positive has come that many, many ceremonies have been conducted on the Red River. Um, Many smudging ceremonies and people praying over the water. And I feel this act is so important because it brings awareness to the issue seeing people physically out there dressed in ceremonial traditional regalia wear praying over the water and bringing awareness to the rest of the community of winnipeg that something very tragic happened here and as we pray over the water 
we pray to reclaim it. We pray for the spirits that we lost. And in our culture, water is sacred. We are born of water, right? When our mothers are ready to give birth, we, we say the water broke. Uh, when we are in the womb, we are surrounded by water, right? Um, yet the Red River has become a graveyard for our people in the same sense. So having ceremony helps turn the narrative of the stereotype of indigenous people all are all unhealthy, we're all up to no good. But turning it to we are capable of, our, of helping ourselves regardless of what we've endured and continue to endure as we are resilient. I think we're gonna take a quick break after this. Um, but if at any time you do need to take a break from this conversation, as I've had to plenty of times as I was researching all my notes, then do it. Take care of yourself. Don't push yourself through this. Come back to it as you need to. Um, this is heavy. This is hard. This is not supposed to be easy to digest. So remember our conversations on self-care and that this applies to that. Um, so take care of yourselves. We're going to take a quick break. Recollect your thoughts, take a deep breath, splash your face with water, drink some water, just do what you need to do. Um, as we continue forward, our next conversation is not going to be an easy one again. So remember self-care as we continue on this conversation. The Indigenous Connection Show. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Indigenous Connections radio show. I'm your host, Randy Lynn, and today's conversation is... And we're on our first installment of that, and we are continuing discussing cases of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls, and really just bringing a light to how horrific and tragic these incidents are. And as I share these stories, I want you to keep in mind that this is just one, two, three stories of three women, but these stories reach up into the thousands. And this is such an ongoing common occurrence in our society as Canadians in North America that Indigenous women have been highly targeted as victims of crime for a very, 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 very long time. So as we go into our next story, um, the one of Cindy Gladue, I just want to kind of make a disclaimer beforehand that this is a very, very hard story to digest. My stomach literally hurt writing the notes for this conversation. Um, and if at any time you do feel overwhelmed, you do feel triggered, take time for yourself. Take a step away. Pause the show. Do what you need to do. Um, but I'm going to go forward with it regardless because I believe this is so important to talk about. And not only what happened to Cindy but following her trial and what horrors the family's experiencing post-trial of Cindy's um, passing. So let's just get into it, I guess. So I knew I wanted to tell the story of Cindy Gladue, but before I did that, I wanted to know who Cindy was, what was her life, what made her special, what was important, as she was a person before all of this stuff happened to her. Uh, she had a life. She mattered. And what I realized was it was very difficult to find an article that portrayed Cindy as a person. 
and not just what happened to her. Uh, and that she is more than just a headline. She is a human that mattered, that was valued. So it took some searching, but I finally got somewhat of a biography of who Cindy was as a person. So Cindy was the eldest child of her mother, Donna McLeod, and she had dreams of beating the odds by attending college and becoming a mother herself. Cindy became a mother of three beautiful girls and became grandmother to one grandchild. Cindy loved to cook for her family and she often attended pilgrimage every summer at Lac St. Anne. Um, so that pilgrimage at Lac St. Anne is a very uh, important event for, event for the Catholic indigenous community. Um, Cindy's full name is Cindy Ivy Gladue, and she was born July 23, 1974, and was raised in northern central Alberta area. So her mother, Mrs. McLeod, decided to move her family from northern Alberta to Edmonton when Cindy was nine years old, and she did this as a way of fleeing from abuse. She didn't want to move to the city, but she felt this was the best decision to remove her family from a unfortunate environment. Cindy was described as having a big heart and very nurturing to those around her. Cindy's best friend was beaten to death, unfortunately. And from this, she fell into a cycle of using substances to cope. And I want to make it clear, I know I made this clear many times, we are not about victim shaming. We do not take, get to judge Cindy for something that so many of us have been affected by, addictions. Um, regardless of a person's choices, their lives still matter, and we still love them. And I take this very personal because I am a daughter of a addict, a recovering addict, thankfully, but I can't even begin to imagine the kind of pain associated if anything ever did happen to my dad when he was active in his addictions and him being shamed for it and just knowing how much I love my father regardless. So we're not about that. We are not victim shaming. We are not about to judge a person for falling into that cycle of addictions after losing someone, as many of us turn to substances as a way to grieve, as a way to cope, because those feelings can be so overwhelming, right? I'm not saying it's healthy, and I'm not saying that's the correct way to deal with things, but that's the reality of our society. And many of us have a very similar story of knowing someone that we love have unfortunately turned to that path, or maybe we have our own experiences with that journey, right? Um, we just pray for them to find their healing in a healthy way one day or another. Anywho, I don't want to focus on the events that led up to Cindy's passing, but what happened to her at the hands of Bradley Barton, a trucker from Ontario, and the disturbing case that followed. Because the events that led up to Cindy getting involved with Mr. Barton, um, I believe is very focused on victim shaming um, and focusing on her high-risk lifestyle. But that doesn't matter. That doesn't give anyone the right to assault, attack, abuse anyone, right? So on June 20th, 2011, 
The body of Miss Cindy Gladry was found in a hotel room, in the hotel room of Mr. Barton. And Cindy, and I apologize for the triggers this may bring up, um, this is a very disturbing story. And if you don't feel like you want to listen to this part, I totally understand. Or you don't feel it's appropriate, I understand as well. But this is the story of Cindy. So Cindy was found in a pool of her own blood in a bathtub in Mr. Barton's hotel room in Edmonton, Alberta. Um, initially, Barton denied knowing Cindy, but there are photos of them together going to Mr. Barton's hotel room. And he said he just fell asleep and she woke, he woke up and she was just in there, passed out, well, dead in her her own blood in the bathtub. <sighs> um, so Cindy's death was caused, and I, I, I'm so sorry that I'm saying this out loud, was caused by an 11 centimeter gash that bled out in her genitalia area, believed to be caused by Barton. Again, I apologize for this language, sodomizing her. Oh, this is this is not comfortable for me, but this is the story of Cindy. So Barton was initially charged with first degree murder, but was acquitted again, not again, but I'm just thinking back to the story of Tina, was acquitted in 2015. There are many upsetting and very, and even racially motivated events that happened during the trial that traumatized Cindy's family toppled in with the grief they were already experiencing. Beginning with defense lawyers asking the jury not to judge Barton on his character as he was found to be a pathological liar, implying, initially implying it's not his fault that he lied several times to authorities and denied knowing Miss Cindy and this and that. And this was followed with the unprecedented decision, and again, trigger warning, this is very disturbing, followed with the unprecedented decision of the medical examiners to display Cindy's surgically removed uh, damaged genitalia in the courtroom. They literally took a piece of Cindy of where the incident happened and put it on display for the court, for the jury, for her family, for everyone to see. Just the blatant disrespect for Cindy, for her memory of her body, of her family, to just be put on display like that. In what reality would this be okay? Um, never in the history of Canada has a deceased individual's genitalia been put on display in such a manner. And to this day, this piece of Cindy is still being preserved by medical examiners and being held by the Crown, 10 years after her passing. And Cindy's family still hasn't properly laid her to rest as they fight to reclaim this piece of her, the piece of their daughter, a piece of their mother. And in Indigenous culture, she is not whole and will not be at peace till all of her is together. Um, another very shocking incident that happened during the trial was pictures of Cindy's deceased body was put on display for her family to see in the courtroom 
and to be traumatized by, right? And I'd like to share a news article with you that kind of, I feel, really touches on what I'm trying to say here. So, during the trial, the judge and lawyers referred to Cindy as a prostitute or sex worker over 50 times. She was not referred to as a human being or honored as a mother, daughter, or friend that many that mourn her passing. This disgusted indigenous and this disgusted indigenous and women's rights leaders. Thousands of people showed up in protest across the country to condemn the treatment of Cindy. This time around, it seems as though Barton's trial is barely a blip of the radar of Canadian headlines. It's not surprising given the media coverage of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls over the last five years in Canada has been less than 2% according to research conducted by Ryerson University School of Journalism Assistant Professor Karen Puglius. Less than 2% of media coverage for ongoing genocide in this country is a big part of the problem. Maybe it's why perpetrators of violence against vulnerable indigenous women think they can get away with it because it's free reign on indigenous women. Although only 4% of all women in Canada, indigenous women make up 28% of homicides against women in 2019. Maybe if we see the loss of life like Cindy's, if we see her as more than a statistic that she had potential hopes, dreams, and deeply loved her three young daughters, if the mainstream ditched the stereotypical lens held towards indigenous women and saw us worthwhile, maybe killers will cease to attack. If justice is served to slaughter our lives, it sends a clear message that our women matter. Cindy mattered. Let's not forget her and all the noise of the pandemic and business of life. If you pay attention, if you want to speak for those who can't, this is what matters. The Indigenous Connection Show. Hi guys, welcome back to the Indigenous Connections radio show. I'm your host, Randy Lynn, and we are continuing telling the story of Miss Cindy Gladue. I clearly remember hearing about this trial in 2015 and reading up on this article, this trial, and hearing the details of Cindy's stories and how after all that Cindy experienced, her accused killer was still acquitted. And just this shock of the lack of respect and dignity given to Cindy and her family. And my emotional response of the heaviness and literally having a rock in my stomach for days. Like, this was six years ago and I can still recall these feelings. That's how much they hit me, I guess. Um, And coming from that, how upset and scared I was that if they could treat Cindy like this, shame her when she is no longer around to defend herself, and then let her killer go, then what was stopping the same thing from happening to my loved ones? Happening to me. And that's a very scary reality. But it's our reality. And if we want change, then we need to continue to talk about it, right? So an update on Cindy's trial. So thanks to the work of grassroots organizations along with Indigenous women advocate groups, the trial of Cindy Gladue was taken back and Barton was retried. And many changes were made to this trial that weren't 
taking into consideration last, the first initial trial, um, Cindy's remains were not put on display this time. And both the Crown prosecutor and the lawyers of the defendant made it uh, a point not to use the type of derogatory language that had been used in the previous trial so that Cindy could be represented as a human, as a person who mattered, who was loved, and life mattered, and not just as a sex worker or addict or any other derogatory label they were throwing at Cindy's memory in order to shame her or make her look like she was the bad person in this situation. With the ending of this trial, Mr. Barton was convicted of manslaughter. And it's amazing at how much language can affect the outcome of a trial. Uh, you literally have all the evidence you want, but because they were portraying Cindy in such a negative light the first time around, he was acquitted, Barton was acquitted. But then when they tried to change the narrative, they made that progressive change to honor Cindy, to honor her life we see justice finally being served. And I feel that's really why we, we fight so hard to be recognized, to be honored, knowing that our roots as indigenous women go all the way back to being considered sacred and holy and respected and I don't wanna say put at the top of the pedestal, but honored in that way that we didn't experience abuse like this. Um, I, got, I can't lie, it, it is a breath of fresh air. Even the littlest win is still a win. We still have so much work to do, but I'm so grateful that in that small time period of the first trial to the second trial, how much society progressed in that time. And we changed from Cindy being this, this, and this, to being a human, to being a mother, to being a sister, to being a daughter, to being a friend, right? And not allowing for perpetrators of abuse and harm against women to use the victim shaming card as their defense, as an excuse for implementing harm on others. That is not an excuse to hurt anyone, right? Especially to take away a life. Oh man, it's a lot, it's a lot. I don't know how else to say it. And for me, this was a very hard, hard episode to record as well as research on. But as I mentioned, it's so important that we have these conversations. The Indigenous Connection Show. Hey guys, so we are going to conclude the fourth installment of the Okamawa Square series now. Um... Thank you for toughing it out with me. Thank you for allowing me the space and the freedom to express my concerns as well as share the stories of ladies that have fallen victim to the missing murdered indigenous women epidemic and the reality that we need to do better as a society and that change is slow but it is possible and we see that in Cindy's case where it was such a horrific horrific everything was so horrific that happened but finally today the family is getting justice 
the justice they deserve and the respect that they deserve to honor their late mother, to honor their late daughter, to honor their late sister. And as much as it breaks my heart to have these conversations, how hard of a burden it is to find the words to properly discuss this, if it means that my nieces, my stepdaughters, all our beautiful little girls out there that are up and coming in this world, our future generations, will be that much safer in society, then breaking my own heart is a sacrifice I'm ready and willing to make. And that's our responsibility as adults, right? To do the hard work today, to heal so that our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren can have that safety, that security, that love that they need. Um, all right, so next week we are going to be continuing on with the Okamawa Square series, fifth installment. Oh my gosh, how did we get here? And I think I'm going to take the conversation to about serial killers in Canada and the serial killers that targeted Indigenous women yet flew so low under the radar and rarely talked about in mainstream media because they targeted Indigenous women. So we're going to talk about that. Yes, it's going to be another heavy conversation, but I promise we are working our way up to the positive again. And eventually, I'd like to kind of end this series with talking about reclaiming our original ways as I see this happening in society so much more every day that we, we see what is referred to as matriarchs rising in modern times. So I've often heard the statement, if you're going to talk about people's injust injustices, then make sure to talk about their triumphs as well. So we started off a high, we kind of dipped down to a low, but we will eventually work our way back up to that high and reclaiming our rightful roles as matriarchs in our society. So thank you for joining me. Remember, take care of yourself. This is not easy to talk about. This is not easy to digest. This is not easy to listen to, but it's important. So all I can emphasize is take care of yourself and we will talk again next week. Thanks. And that's the Indigenous Connection show, Randy Lynn. I like to give credit to A Tribe Called Red for their track sisters that we used in our intro.